Thank you. Please go ahead and take a seat. I act, after that, I actually just wanted to stay backstage because it's just going to be a disappointment from here. So, um, no, I, I uh, just a couple quick words. I deeply love your pastor, John Lash. Uh, echo those words. He is a dear friend. Uh, love him. Love you all. And uh, my wife, uh, Rebecca, loves Nancy, just adores that woman. And so honored to be here with you and um, so glad that the Lashes are getting some time away to take a sabbatical. I think that is such a wise practice to recharge the soul, sharpen the ax, so to speak, take a moment and do that. Um, and so glad that they're doing that this summer. In fact, um, you probably don't know this, but last summer I took a sabbatical and you all were part of my sabbatical because when we were in town, Rebecca and I came, this was the church that we would come to and so came and got a chance to worship with you all. So love you all and, and um, just I'm going to pray and then we're going to open up God's word for a time of Bible study. But before I do that, just a word of encouragement over you because you hear your vision from your incredible leaders, um, Pastor John, you've heard it from AJ and Gabby, Pastor Malik, you hear your vision over and over, but can I just take a minute and just affirm from another voice in South Florida the work that God is doing through you and how you're impacting the rest of the city, and uh, that's not just you here as um, Greenhouse here in South Florida, but Greenhouse, Guyana, those of you who are involved but you're watching online, um, the work that God is doing through your church is incredible. And I just want to affirm a couple things just as an outside voice in, um, but still a family member by Jesus Christ, right? But from the outside, and let me just affirm a couple things. First of all, um, this is what the South Florida church knows about Greenhouse, is you have a true, deep, authentic empowerment by the Holy Spirit. That's something that God is doing here. It's something the Holy Spirit is doing here. There is the, the work that's expressed in a couple ways through the miraculous works that he's doing in and among you, in your lives, among your, among your micro churches, in your prayer meetings. We celebrate as the church watching how the Holy Spirit is working through you. He also does that by your authentic, genuine, just, straight love for Jesus. That's a work for the Holy Spirit. Second thing I just want to affirm that the outside South Florida church knows about this church and celebrates is your generosity is leading the way. The vision of this church to give so generously back out of these walls, that is not normal. That is gospel-inspired generosity. And that's due because of the vision seeping down into you as family. So you're generously giving so your church can give back out keep going. You're setting the tone. You're challenging the rest of the South Florida church by what you're doing here. And, and last thing I want, I could list many things, and I actually had a longer list that I whittled down because this is not even yet my sermon. Like, I have a whole sermon still coming. Okay, so anyway, um, the last thing is you're the authentic expression of church through your micro churches is influencing the rest of South Florida. And so, like, I can just speak for City Rev. We sent some of our leaders, some of our pastors, to sit with your leaders and say, please, tell us what's happening in your microchurches. And so I just want to affirm that. And again, I, you know, I don't even, this is not my home church, but if you're not in a microchurch here, you are missing out on something that the rest of the South Florida church 
is paying attention to. And so I just want to speak that over you because you can hear it celebrated by your leaders, but hear it from another part of the South Florida church. There are so many ways. I mean, this church, God is doing something incredible. If you are a guest or you're just checking out this church or watching online, you have stumbled across an incredible church. That, it's an incredible thing that God's doing. Can we just celebrate what God's doing at Greenhouse? Just celebrate the Lord, his work here. Praise God for that. Um, it's an honor for me to just to share some thoughts. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into the word together. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you in. Because you and you speaking into our souls and our hearts, that's all we want. That's all we want. That's what we're here for. A word from you. So we're going to dig into your word, and I just pray that you would take over. We open up our hearts, and we just surrender. We say, Jesus, we love you so much, we don't hold anything back. So please show us what you want us to hear. We believe that this morning, like every time we set aside time to gather weekly as a church, we believe you have set aside this time to speak into our hearts. So we, we give you this moment. I echo what Gabby said. Lord, we ask that whatever you want to do would bear fruit from today, would bear fruit for many years to come. But just may it be you, Holy Spirit, would you speak? And we surrender to that work in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're launching into the summer, many of you probably at some point We'll go on a vacation. My wife, Rebecca, and I have set aside kind of our vacation plans, going to go see some family uh, up north. And so we've got, got those plans. Maybe your vacation plans, um, you're going to go camping. Maybe you like camping. I mean, people like, like to go camping in here. Anybody? A couple of you. Some half-hearted people like, my family makes me go. Okay, it was like a half-hand. I'm not someone that goes camping. Um, I like the outdoors via documentary. Um, that, to me, is... Great way to experience God's creation. Others of you, maybe you're going to do like a, uh, a hotel or an Airbnb, maybe. Anybody say that's a little bit more my speed when I travel? Some of you, yeah, many of you. Um, that's a little bit more my style to do. And I've done the, the Airbnb thing. And, you know, I've heard some, some horror stories about Airbnbs because you go on and maybe you see, okay, this is what's advertised and it gets your expectations like up here. And then you show up and you're like, I don't know who took those photos, but that is not even of this building that I am in right now. And you had way high expectations and they capitalize on your high expectations. But I was just curious one day, this is kind of how my twisted mind works. I did a little bit of a research. I'm like, what is like the worst Airbnb listing that has ever been up. Like, what's just someone that they actually have the opposite? Like, they're banking on someone having really low expectations of their vacation. Like, what would be the worst Airbnb? And I looked up, and there's some practical jokes out there, but there was one, by and large, that was agreed upon on multiple websites. This one is the worst Airbnb listing that has ever been attempted, okay? And I was so moved by this picture that I brought it to show you. This right here is considered. <laughs> like that's creative right there. Like I'm, I look at that and I'm thinking to myself like, 
I mean, at least some kind of flooring, like I would have thought like a roof of some kind, like having a roof over your head, like that's not just a metaphor for something, like that's a real literal thing. Okay, and actually they got this taken down. And I love how Airbnb contacted them with just such tact. But they said, this listing had to be removed for not meeting our occupancy standards. In future, be sure to pick a place with four walls, running water, and a little more privacy. And I think that's a tactful way to say, you're crazy. What were you thinking? Okay. Their strategy for renting that space had to be, we're capitalizing on really low expectations. Someone that wants to spend $5 to stay in, that, stay in a place, like really low expect, expectations. The reason I, I tell you this story is um, because the text that we're going to look at is one of those difficult sayings about Jesus. As we're reading through the book of Matthew, and, and as um, Greenhouse, you're working through Matthew and looking at these difficult sayings that Jesus said, you're saying, hey, look, if Jesus said it, we're not going to dumb it down. Jesus said it. I want to know. I, I want it straight exactly how Jesus said it. I want to conform myself to Jesus and his words and I want to work it out in my life. If Jesus said it, I'm not going to reduce it, reshape it um, to me. I, if he said it, that's how I want to hear it. And so as, we, as you're walking through this series, a, a passage in Matthew that I, I want us to take a look at is one of those sayings. But here's the way it challenges us. It challenges our really, really low expectations. We can sometimes have without even realizing it, we can say what we know about God, what we believe about God, but then as we're living out our journey with God, at times we can miss the fact that we have actually really low expectations, and this passage is a challenge. It's difficult. We're tempted to kind of reframe it because it challenges those low expectations. I want you to open with me in uh, your Bible or your Bible app. I want you to open with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to take a look at verse 13. And let it challenge us in our expectations. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now let's just pause here for a second. Let's get our bearings at this point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is traveling around, and the first thing we learn in this text is that he is um, going through the region around the city of Caesarea Philippi. Now if it offers that detail, let's not skip over it. Why is this particular region significant. Um, also, what's particularly also interesting is Caesarea Philippi is not one of those cities that is talked about a lot. It's not one of those cities like Bethany or Jerusalem or Capernaum or Bethsaida that you hear Jesus in a lot. In fact, this episode, as recorded in Matthew and in Mark, this is the only occurrence of the city, Caesarea Philippi, is only with this particular episode. This is the only time. And both Matthew and Luke 
uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the story. Matthew and Mark preserve that this episode happened in this city. So that has us leaning in. Why is this city of Caesarea Philippi of importance? Let's put that on the shelf. We'll come back to that in a little bit. They're traveling through Caesarea Philippi. As they're going, Jesus asks them this question. What's the word out there about me? Like, what are people saying about who I am? And that's exactly what the question was. And think about that for a second. That's different. It's not just, what is he saying? What is he doing? What is he after? Like, what is his intentions? What are his aspirations? What will he do? It's who. Who is he? Like, so unbelievable were the things that he was doing that they were beyond just grappling with what is he doing, what is he going to do. They're asking, who is this guy? Like, that was their question. And he's not just adding that question in. That is the question they were dealing with, like the crowds. Jesus and his ministry, it's gone viral. They all know who he is at this point. They're all talking about it, and their question is, who is he? And so there's a couple theories. And so they say, okay, well, here are some of the theories because they're trying to get their brains around who is this guy. They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say, you know, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Some say Elijah. Now you say, like, how could Jesus be one of those guys? There, there were literally people, Herod being one of them, that actually thought the only way he could get in his brain who Jesus was is that he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Remember, John the Baptist was like around them like a few months ago. He hasn't been gone that long. He was just executed, and Herod's like, maybe he came back to life. Like, who is this guy? Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Reincarnation is not a doctrine that comes out of the Old Testament. So whatever Jesus is doing... It is so category exploding in their mind that the best they can draw from is maybe it's one of the prophets has been reincarnated. I don't know. Maybe Elijah came back. You know, maybe Jeremiah came back. Maybe John the Baptist has kind of like manifested again. Like these are the, the theories that they're coming up with. And we read this and we're like, isn't there like maybe a much more obvious conclusion as to who he is? You don't have to reach so far to suggest a reincarnated prophet from the Old Testament. Like maybe there's something a lot more obvious that Jesus could be. So then Jesus turns his question to the disciples. And watch this. He says, but who do you say that I am? You know, that it right there, it's probably the most important question that you and I could ever conceive of. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Because the stakes are really high for how we answer that. He confronts them with that. Like, I, I wonder, and maybe this is just how I picture it. He's walking along. He's kind of maybe rejoined them after a time of prayer. I imagine walking, saying, hey, who do they say that he is? And then I think he stopped and he turned. 
and they all froze, and he's like looking at them, like scanning their eyes, probably in a, a look they were really familiar with, where it looks like he's looking through their eyes into their soul, which he actually could do. And I wonder if with just a penetrating gaze, like only the one that's holding their molecules together could do. He said, but who do you say that I am? And maybe their throats dried up. They kind of shifted uncomfortably, wondering who should speak, but one of them spoke up. Verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Got to hand it to Peter. He nailed it. Now, it's going to be a rough day for Peter because he's going to be flying high here. Sounds like he's like, he got it right. I mean, he did. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The very next verses after, we've, after this text we're looking at today, he's going to start saying, and I've got to suffer and die, and then I'll be risen again. And Peter, kind of maybe riding high on his recent declaration, pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, don't be talking about dying. That's bumming everybody out. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, which is... Kind of rough. It's hard, you know, you're high, riding high one moment and then, you know, he's, he's down. So this is emotional roller coaster for Peter. Okay, but in this moment, he nails it. You're the Christ. That means the Messiah. You are the long-awaited Mashiach from the Old Testament that we've been waiting for, the anointed one, the promised one. You're the one, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. You are the one that will, that will be on the throne of David, the branch from the stump of David that will reign for all time. I mean, this is a massive, massive statement. I mean, the one that they've been waiting for from the beginning, he's saying, that one is here now. I'm, I get the privilege of walking along in Caesarea Philippi with that guy that every generation from Abraham has been waiting from, and the one that they was promised through the line of Judah. Like that one, I get the privilege of walking next to him. You are him. And not just the long-awaited deliverer Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are the God, you are God incarnated in the flesh, the Emmanuel, God with us tabernacling around with us. You are housing the presence of God because you are the Son of God in the flesh. Wow. Pretty big statement, Peter. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now we look at that and we say, yeah, man, why are you thinking it might be Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist? That's crazy. Clearly he's the Messiah, but look what Jesus says. He says, and you wouldn't have gotten that if the Father hadn't revealed it to you. It's so profound who Jesus is. It's an act of the Father to reveal it into our souls. That's who Jesus is. This is the, this right here, the, Christ, the Son of the living God, God on the scene, and we know by what he says again in that next section that this is the, this is the foundation, the gospel. From here, what we know 
He says, I'm going to suffer and die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. He's the one that the Mashiach of the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52, 53, the suffering servant, the one who came by his, where he's pierced for our iniquities. He is, by his stripes we are healed. He will take away our sin. But look what he says next. Let's pick it up in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He says, Peter, after Peter makes this incredible declaration, he says, Peter, um, you know, God gave you those words. He says, but you're no longer Peter. Here's who you are. He says, you are, uh, I call you Peter. The Greek word is Petros. He says, because on this rock, Petra is the Greek word. I will build my church. Now, this is one of those challenging parts of the Bible because depending on which stream of Christendom, this is interpreted a little bit differently. Our Catholic brothers and sisters um, would take this passage as to say, G, uh, Peter says this, this phrase, this declaration of who Jesus is, and Jesus is saying, because you said this, Peter, I'm building, I'm calling you rock, and I'm going to build the church on this rock meaning build it on Peter. And so as Peter then becomes the bishop of Rome, then our Catholic brothers and sisters would say the office of the bishop of Rome and its, um, its uh, successors is where they get the pope or the papacy. And so they say you know, that's where that idea that would support that doctrine. From the stream that we are in, we would look at this passage and we'd say, well, for starters, um, you can just see uh, Peter is given this honor, but Peter is far from infallible in the very next passage. He has a, a, you know, a massive fall, okay? And it's not the last fall that Peter will have, but he is honored for uttering this phrase. And he's given that name because of Peter, which we all still call him Peter to this day, um, to honor that. But if you look at the grammar, the word uh, Petros is, is masculine, Peter, Petros, but when he says, and on this rock, it's feminine, Petra. If he was referring to Peter, he would have picked the masculine version of that. So why did he pick the feminine? Because he's not referring to Peter the man. He's referring to the words that Peter just spoke. That declaration, who Jesus is, is the most foundational phrase. That is it. It's in that phrase, the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to die to pay for our sins and rise again from the dead. That message of the gospel is the foundation of the church. Jesus is the rock that we build our lives on, right? We don't build our lives on sinking sand. We build it on the rock, on Jesus. And that, that statement of the gospel about Jesus is what he's building the church on. You follow me? Okay. So... Peter utters this phrase of, of that God has revealed to Peter. Now, Peter is revealing who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, on that truth, the gospel, I am building my church. Actually, he says, I will 
build my church. And then he says something interesting. And the gates of hell, the gates of hell will not stand against it. Now it's interesting that both uh, Matthew and Mark, they, they stop on the fact that he's walking through Caesarea Philippi. Um, it's interesting if you, uh, in Caesarea Philippi, there are these ancient ruins that you can actually still go see. And Caesarea Philippi is really dramatic um, because there's the sheer rock face. And it's way at the, the northern part of Israel. So it's north of the Galilee area. It's right at the, the foot of Mount Hermon. And um, so that's at the very beginning, the mouth of the Jordan River that runs down to the Sea of Galilee, empties into the Sea of Galilee, and then it picks up at the other end, the south of the Sea of Galilee, runs down into the Dead Sea and kind of nourishes all of Israel on its way down. But if you go see the ruins, there is a very dramatic, large cave. It goes deep back into the rock face. And when you see it, I mean, you kind of stand back. In fact, um, things have moved ge uh, geologically because of earthquakes and stuff. But back in the day, they, uh, they believed that waters came up out of that cave and springs from the water. And then as waters ran down Mount Hermon, they kind of gathered up, and it was the fountainhead of the Jordan River. Um, but it's very dramatic to see it. Let me show you a picture of it. This is Caesarea Philippi, some of the ruins. So you can see the little people there. And you can see this real kind of spooky, dark cave there. And if you look really closely, you can see the back of the cave. But back in the first century, you could not see the back of the cave. It went all the way back, and it went down very, very deeply. And what they actually believed at the time of Jesus, from uh, what historians and archaeologists have told us, what they actually believed was that that went so far back and so far down that they believed that was led to the river Styx down into the underworld. That this was the mouth that led down to Hades. In fact, they even um, had a temple. You can see the ruins of the temple. Here's what an artist um, uh, rendition of what it might have looked like um, at the time. They built a temple to several different gods, one of them being the god Pan. They built a temple at the mouth of this cave. Now, why would you build a, I mean, a mouth, uh, a, a, a temple at the mouth of a cave that you believe went down into Hades? I mean, you can imagine kind of the, the dark type worshiping practices there. You can imagine as Jesus and his disciples are kind of walking through this region. You can imagine just feeling the darkness of being in a place as they're approaching. And they can see this rock face and see this temple at the mouth of a place that they, they worship and celebrate that goes down to Hades. You can imagine just kind of the darkness of that worship practices there. That heaviness, that oppressiveness that might be kind of weighing down as they're coming near this space. And it's no wonder that Jesus took this particular spot to make a declaration. I don't think when he stopped, I think he walked and then he looked at them and he said, you know, who, who do you say I am? And then I think when he made his final declaration, I don't think he whispered it. I don't think when he made his final declaration, I don't think he just said it to him. I think he looked over at this 
this rock face. I think he looked over at this temple celebrating the mouth that goes down to Hades, the gates of hell itself. I think he looked at it and mustering up all of his fury and anger for the idolatrous practices that sweep through among his people. I think he looked and he shouted and said, and I will build my church and the gates of hell themselves will not stand against him. I think that's what he did. I think because Jesus, in the face of all of the wicked darkness and oppression, right there, I think he wanted right there, obstinately, I think right, right there as, a, as an act of courageous opposition, standing in the darkest place where they thought was the gates to hell itself, I think he wanted to look it in the eye and declare it. That's how ferociously he believed it. So this challenges us. These words of Jesus, they, they push us. We have to ask ourselves, I mean, if Jesus said he will build his church and there is nothing, not hell itself, that's going to stand against him. Let's let that confront us a little bit. Because here's how it works with Jesus, and I know you know this. You know, when, when we declare something, we're describing reality. When God says words and declares something, he's creating reality. When he says, let there be light, he's not describing light. He's inventing it. When he says to Peter, you are Petros, he's not saying, hey, I think, hey, let's all call him Peter from now on. That is now who he is. It's been created. When Jesus says something, he's creating reality. So the declarations of Jesus, that means they are a certainty. And if they are a certainty, then we should then have an expectancy. We should have an expectancy that if Jesus said it, he creates reality, then it is as good as done because he's spoken it out. He's not predicting it. He's not, he's not pretty sure it's going to happen. He's creating that reality. So if he's declared it, it's a certainty. So then we must have expectancy. And there's a word in the Bible for us having that kind of expectancy. It's called hope. We have hope. We have a posture where we say, hey, I know who God is. It doesn't matter the dark, oppressive circumstances I find myself in. That is actually immaterial. It doesn't matter what I'm staring down right now. It doesn't matter what city I'm walking through. If It doesn't matter what everything else is screaming at me. I know what Jesus has declared. That is certain. And so I'm expectant of that to happen. And so we walk in. That's called hope. We have a hope, and that hope is not influenced by our circumstances. It's anchored to who someone is. Our hope is anchored to a who. It's anchored to Jesus. We have a living hope in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that greenhouse? Okay. So let's work this out. Here's what he said. He said, I will build my church, and nothing's going to stop that. So what does that mean about the church of our generation? 
Sometimes if you listen to certain voices both inside and outside the church, maybe you just look at certain circumstances or you look at various aspects of the culture wars that are going on, sometimes it's easy to lose hope. But can this confront us for a second? We have no place for hopelessness. He said, I will build my church. So that means this generation of the church will be built. We cannot lose because Jesus is building it. That means it doesn't matter if we're the only ones in only ones in this room of an entire global generation, if it was just those of us in this room who had hope and faith that Jesus was going to build the church in our generation, that's enough. He, he, there was a time when he turned over the entire world with just a handful of people who had hope. He could do it again. But here's the reality. We're not the only ones in this room. We're, it's not just our brothers and sisters in Guyana. It's not just people all over. There is a global church around the world that still has hope and knows he is building his church in our generation, and we will never give up hope. Do you believe that, Greenhouse? Okay. We have hope that he's going to build our church in our generation. How about hope that he's going to build the, uh, the church here in our city? Can I tell you, you know, I, I am, like Pastor John, I, I grew up in a, um, in a, a pastor's house. I'm a PK. I survived, okay? I'm a PK, which, which I can tell you, I, I've been close to the South Florida church all of my life. I grew up in it. And I've seen, at times, our brokenness. But I also have a front row seat into the new work that he's doing. I've seen through through Church United and through unity movements and through the war of brothers and sisters coming together and saying, we're not rivals, we're family. And I've seen something historic. In fact, as I was worshiping this morning, I was just struck. I didn't even think about this. Uh, one of the City Rev campuses uh, meets in Cooper City High School. And what strikes me is Western High School and Cooper City High School are rivals, but the churches that meet in them are brothers and sisters. And where the world separates, the body of Christ brings together. Amen? See, here's, a, here's what we know. There is a historic work being done right now in your city. There's a historic work being done in South Florida, in Miami, and in Fort Lauderdale, and up in Palm Beach, and it's spreading out to Collier County, and up the Treasure Coast. There's a work where God's saying, okay, guys, it's time to come together, and if the Holy Spirit is doing his miraculous work of unity, he's got a reason for it, and that makes me expectant. Does that make you expectant? That makes me expectant of what he's about to do here in our city. We have hope for what he's doing in the church in our generation. We have hope for what he's doing in the church of our city. And we have hope for what he's doing in our, in our churches locally. Do you have hope for what he's doing in Greenhouse? Do you see what he's doing in Greenhouse? Do you realize at this moment, I hope you've never been more expectant than in going into this summer where God's like, okay, what's coming next? I'm going to need you, John and Nancy, to get refilled up, okay? I'm going to need you to be overflowing with the presence of, of the Holy Spirit because of what's coming Coming next. I hope you, Greenhouse, you're saying, oh, I don't know what's coming next, but it's going to be incredible. I hope you're feeling filled up over the summer because God has said you're not just a place. Greenhouse is not just a place where you come and get a shot in the arm on the weekend. He is raising up an army called Greenhouse. 
He's raising up an army to come together and minister to each other, minister the Holy Spirit to each other, but then go out into your neighborhoods and your friend groups, go out to your places where you work. As the church going out to reach the city, he is raising up an army, and I can't wait to behold what he's got store in this next season because he is building greenhouse, and nothing is going to stop him from building greenhouse. We have hope for how he's building the church in our generation. We have hope for how he's building the church in our city. We have hope for how he's building his church greenhouse. And we have hope for how he's building the church, which is us. The church is people. You know this. It's not a brand. It's not a 501c3. It's not a time slot on Sunday morning. It's you. You're the living stones that make up the holy temple that he's building in this city. You're the parts of the body. You're a kingdom of royal priests. That's who you are. It's you. So if he's building up us together, that means he's, he's building you up. That means nothing's going to stop what he's doing in your life. See, I wonder if this is where it breaks down. Because sometimes it's easier to see what he's doing like at my church than to see what he's doing in my life. You say, Pastor Ruby, I, if I'm honest, man, you talk about expect, expectancy. I had expectations. I've had things I've held on to in my life, and I believed God for them. But now I'm suffering disappointment. It was that, that Medical issue that we prayed so hard about. I know he can heal. I've seen it. But he said, no. I had expectations, and I'm struggling with disappointment. You say, I, I, I believed that this relationship was the one, and, and then it fell apart. The dating relationship fell apart. The engagement fell apart. The marriage fell apart. I'm still struggling. I've got disappointment I'm still working through. You say, I believed so I'm raising my kids that they would walk in the way of Jesus and there's one that's not and I can't pray any harder. I have no more tears to shed. I'm still struggling with disappointment. Yeah, I believed God for that promotion, but I, I, I didn't happen and now I'm still stuck here and, and the bad guy got it. I believed God for my finances and I'm still struggling. You say, look, here's the problem. I have hope and it's easier to sometimes feel hope for his church, but what about me? I'm struggling. And you say, if I'm honest, it's the fact that I had expectations that he didn't meet and I'm struggling and disappointing, which is kind of making me a little bit less believing for what he's doing for my church and a little less believing for what he's doing for my city. And it's, I struggle to get passionate, excited for what he's doing in the church of my generation. I, I'd be on fire, but I'm struggling with expectations that he didn't meet. Can we let this confront us today about low expectations? See, there's a difference between expectations and expectancy. Expectations are particulars. They're specifics. I have specific expectations that I want for my finances, for my, a specific relationship, a specific promotion, a specific medical issue. I, I have a, it's particulars that I'm expecting God to do specifically. Expectations are particulars. Expectancy is a posture. It's an open-handedness to say you're sovereign and nothing's going to stop you. So even if the particulars 
don't go the way that I want, that sometimes I hold up the particulars as if I sovereignly know what his goodness should look like. And I say, your, your, your goodness should be ex- expressed in this particular. And God says, but true faith and trust that I'm sovereign means you surrender the particulars, but you maintain the posture. Surrender the expectations, but maintain the expectancy. Because here's what you know. In each one of those points of suffering, if there's not yet resurrection, he's not yet done. If it's not yet been redeemed, then the redeemer hasn't finished his work. Because that's who he is. He goes by that name. He's the redeemer. He redeems. He raises things up. He resurrects them in his time. And while we surrender the specifics, we still say, even still, I wait for you because I know that if you, don't, if you did not withhold your own son, how will you withhold anything from me? I know that you will work all things together for good. I know that all my circumstances, all of it looks like that you aren't good, but I know what you declared. And if you declared that's who you are, then I believe it. And I have a posture of expectancy and waiting for resurrection in this part of my life. See, here's the question that we have to ask. We go all the way back to this. Here's the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the question. And if you know who Jesus is, you can surrender the particulars and maintain the posture. If you know who Jesus is, that is the whole question. Can I remind you who your Jesus is? He was the one that saw a woman bent over for 18 years staring at the ground, back broken, and no one could possibly heal her. And with one touch, she was healed with no physical therapy needed. Can I tell you who your Jesus is? There was a woman who was bleeding for 12 years, weakened and ostracized from her community. She was completely without hope, Hopeless, no doctor could do anything for it. And all she had the strength to do was to push through the crowd and reach for the hem of his garment. And just that act of faith, he says, my daughter, faith has healed you. That's who your Jesus is. Can I tell you who your Jesus is? It was his friend Lazarus who's gasping for breath on his bed saying, please call Jesus. If if only Jesus could be here, I could be healed. And he's gasping and choking. And in his final breath, his eyes go dark with no Jesus showing up because he couldn't yet conceive of the fact that Jesus didn't need need to be there when he was alive to still raise this man back to life. And the next moment, his eyes come open, shrouded in the grave clothes. He pulls them off and comes hobbling out of a tomb. Four days later, Jesus has risen him from the dead. That is who your Jesus is. Can I remind you who your Jesus is? Your Jesus is the one that's from all the way in the beginning. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the one that is holding all things together. It's by him and through him. It is all for him. He's the one who surrendered to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that God has bestowed on him the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess. That is who your Jesus is. 
He's the one that is, holds all history. And can I remind you, he's the one that holds the future so that at any moment, maybe before we're done worshiping today, there will be a shout and a trumpet from heaven and the sky will roll back like a scroll and come screaming out of the heaven will be your Lord and Savior Jesus, eyes aflame with fire and his words like a sword to strike down the wicked and he will come to claim his bride for his own as the mighty victorious Jesus that he is. That is who your Jesus is. Can we celebrate your Jesus today? That is who your Jesus is. And if that's who your Jesus is, then you can have hope in your circumstances. You can maintain and wait for Jesus to do his redemptive work. You can have expectancy for your church. You can have expectancy for your city and expectancy for our generation and maintain that posture of hope because that's who we have. We have a living hope. Let me pray over you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Some of you maybe came in today and maybe said, I, I believe in God. But can I encourage you Honestly, the Bible says this. The question is not, do you believe in God? The Bible says even the demons believe in God. It's who do you say that he is? Is Jesus a teacher? A religious leader? No, he's the Messiah. He's come to save you, rescue you. So maybe you've said, yeah, I'm religious. I believe in God. and I." But now come to Jesus today. Put your faith in the Savior who died for you. He paid for all of your sins. It's not about believing in God and trying to be good enough to get to heaven. It's believing in not what you do, but what Jesus did to save you. Put your faith in Jesus today. I'm going to lead you in that moment. If you want to put your faith in Jesus today, then just simply right there where you're at, just silently surrender. Make this your silent prayer to Jesus. Say, Say this, just repeat these words silently there. Just say, Jesus, I surrender to you. You're my Messiah. You saved me. You forgave my sin by your work on the cross. And I make you my king. Lord, I pray over Greenhouse Church, thank you for my brothers and sisters. These incredible, mighty warriors filled with the Holy Spirit commissioned to reach South Florida for your kingdom. I pray in the name of Jesus a mighty work in them in this time that they meet on Sunday mornings, in their micro churches. But I pray in their homes would you do a mighty work, Holy Spirit. I pray for a mighty work that you would do in their neighborhoods and their friend groups and their influence online. A mighty work that you would do at their workplaces. Send them as ambassadors for you, King Jesus. May they, may they bear great fruit here in South Florida. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 